Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and today we are celebrating our 200th episode of the podcast. Our guest today needs no introduction. He's a founder of Stolmeyer Games, who are celebrating their 10-year anniversary as a company this month. Please welcome Jamie Stegmeyer. Jamie, welcome back to The Binge. How are you doing? Hey, James. It's, it's great to be back. I'm honored to be invited for this, this huge episode. 200 is incredible. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been it's been quite the journey. Uh, for people that yeah. uh, obviously they can go to Stonemeyer Games and see your weekly blog. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this particular uh, podcast, I think we had you as episode 28 uh, was kind of okay. the intro to Jamie Stegmeyer. Um, and then we brought you back with um, with Alex Schmidt and we were talking about Red Rising. Okay. Actually, I got it on the shelf here behind me. And yeah. uh, that was episode 104. So people want to get into Red Rising or they want to kind of talk about the intro, check out those episodes. Uh, but for today's episode, I'm hoping we can go deep. I mean, 10 sure. years as a company, uh, you've seen it all, I guess. Eh? Like, uh, <laughs> how does it feel to kind of be hitting like the 10 year mark? It, it's a little surreal. Um, 10 years is a long time to do anything. It's longer than than, than many friendships that I've had. I've been in multiple houses in that time. I've had multiple jobs in that time. Yeah, so it's uh, a lot has changed in in my life and in the world um, and in my company. So it, yeah, it's it's a it's a neat milestone milestone to 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 meet. When you said yeah. two thousand, so it's two thousand twelve. I guess was the uh, yeah. when you launched. Now is that kind of like when you started, or when technically Stolmeyer was a, became a company, or how did you kind of set the milestone date? Yeah, it's a little arbitrary. I, I officially started working on Viticulture, mm. um, which was the first our first game, our yeah. first Kickstarter. Um, I started working on that around this time in 2011, but uh, really everything hinged upon meeting the funding goal of that Kickstarter, and then ultimately actually delivering it. But the first step was reaching that, reaching that funding goal, which we reached on September 10th. Of, uh, of 2012. So that is the wow. kind of the official day that I see. We could have picked other days, like the day that we officially incorporated as a company, the day yeah. that we said, okay, let's try this. But that to me is the day that it went from a possibility to a reality. Now, I, I don't even know the answer to this, but like Stonemeyer as a name, did you have that yeah. right from the beginning? Like, was that like upon launch, we're going to be Stonemeyer? And how did you, obviously you got the Stegmeyer, Stonemeyer, but right. how did you come up with the name? And, and was it there at the beginning or did it kind of come in later? In the beginning, it was just me designing a game. And so I, yeah. I didn't actually have, um, I guess I, I could have possibly come up with that name then, but it, it, I didn't have a business partner. My my, my friend, Alan mm. Stone, ended oh, okay. up playtesting um, Viticulture with me and said that he had a lot of fun with it. And he asked if he could continue that process. And he ended up being my my co-founder with the company. And so we we ended up combining our last names, Stone, his last name, Stone, my last name, Stegmeyer, to essentially create a German sounding board game company name because we figured that we were going to make the types of games that we had seen come out of Germany, like, like Agricola um, yeah. was one, a big inspiration for us. Yeah. And you were one of the, I would say, if not the first, one of the first to kind of, I guess, in launching on Kickstarter with board games, there was others that were starting to launch games, but you're the first one yeah. to kind of get to that that I guess indie scale uh, on a consistent basis from um, you know from title to title. Um, what was it like kind of back then as an industry versus kind of where it is now? Can you kind of illustrate for us kind of how how much has really changed over those ten years? 
Yeah, it's changed quite a lot. And I definitely can't take credit for being the first. I was following on the footsteps of some other great companies. Yeah, sure. Uh, Tasty Minstrel Games, Ryan Lockett from Regraven Games. He was already on Kickstarter um, and a few others. But there were, like, I could probably, I could probably go back and list on a short piece of, uh, a small piece of paper, the number of board game projects that had launched at that point. And nowadays, I could use that same piece of paper for the number of games that launch on any given week. Like there's yeah. so many more games that launch now on Kickstarter. And, and now we have multiple crowdfunding platforms for, for games as well. I would say the biggest thing, well, one, one big change, other than like the polish of campaigns that you see, uh, the one thing that I can say that we, I think, were the first at doing that has had a huge impact, hopefully a hugely positive impact on the, on the gaming industry, the community, and the crowdfunding community, is that I think we were the first company to use multiple fulfillment centers around the world. Before mm. that, most everything was shipped from a hub in whatever uh, country or region the creator was from. Um, and we were like, well, there's got to be a more efficient way of like shipping to Australia than shipping from the US. And so uh, that that has been a very widespread thing that that emerged, I think, at least partially due to our efforts with Viticulture. How many hubs did you start off with? Because now I, I think you have yeah. like quite a few. If, now I don't know how many have dozens. Have four. Maybe now. Oh, you have four. four now. I think back then we may have even had five i can't remember exactly really? well we used we used amazon multi-channel fulfillment back then we, we moved away from doing that after a few projects maybe we only had four um but for a little while we had one in asia and it didn't work out the way i hope so we haven't had one in asia for a while and i can't remember if we had that at the beginning um but i think it was either four or five yeah well, was the move away from amazon partly to do with uh the care they put into packages when they deliver them or <laughs> that's a big part of it yeah <laughs> Yeah, we had a collector's edition. I think it was after Viticulture in Tuscany. Uh, so I did the Viticulture campaign. Then a few years later, I came back and did a collector's edition of Viticulture and then Tuscany. Yeah, And it was this really nice, beautiful collector's edition. And Amazon treated it like any other package, uh, like any other cardboard box. And it, uh, we had some damages. Um, and also Amazon, you know, pretty, uh, like it, it's an amazing story of a company. They do some amazing things for the world. Yeah. Um, also some not, not so amazing things, but some very good stuff. But they are very impersonal. Like I, I can't, you can't ever reach out to someone at Amazon and say, Hey, like, Hey, I put the wrong address on this order. Can you change that? That's impossible to do there. Whereas yeah. we work with these much more personal, um, great customer service fulfillment centers now that are able to do that sort of, sort of, sort of thing. Yeah, it blows me away. Like, and I, I deal with uh, fun again in the States and I, mm. I use uh, yeah. ShipQuest in, uh, in the UK. Um, both of them, I, I mean, you have a, a direct line many times yeah. either to the person running the company or even in some cases the owner right like right and they're responding to you right and uh yeah. that that personal touch uh to me makes a huge difference just in time quite frankly the amount of time oh, you yeah. burn and everyone knows the amazon story where you can't you can't actually talk to anybody so it's always tickets you're logging and then you know just kind of right. going this this continuous circle of trying to to figure things out which can take sometimes weeks Versus yeah. just getting on the phone with somebody and working through what the issue is, 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 is huge. Right. Yeah. You know, preemptively them looking at the stuff arriving from China when they open up the container and saying, Hey, you know, there's half a dozen games here or more that uh, we would classify as ding and dents. Right. And they'll right. set those aside for you, packing them up in the box, you know, making sure that, you know, they're, they're, they're wrapping it in, in like, like they, they're getting the game themselves, right. They're wrapping it like, right. If someone's shipping it to me, how do I want to see it? And I think these things are all, yeah. um, you know, are key. And, and and maybe it might cost a little bit more in some cases. Maybe it doesn't. But uh, certainly, yeah. I think those extra touches save time and and help with quality, right? And one one memorable moment for me related to that is we and this is a mistake that I made, but I put the wrong skew on some metal coins 
um, back in like 20, I think it was probably 2014, 2015. Yeah. And we, and so they showed up at Amazon and Amazon could not do anything with those coins because they already had the SKU in their system under something else. Or I guess they could do something, but they were, yeah. they were shipping a product under the wrong SKU and they couldn't fix it. Whereas you go to fun again and you say, Hey, look, I made a mistake. I put the wrong SKU on this. And they can, like any human being, they can look at it and see that this pack of coins is different than this, you know, this cardboard box that that has the yeah. same skew. And they can they can have that level of service. So or even segregate then, the inventory, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What Amazon you... is very good at some things, but not that. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is kind of like the biggest change you first saw in the industry? So, you know, over 10 years, there's yeah. going to be these milestones where it forces you to shift as maybe as a company in your style or your approach, but Sometimes it's, you know, and the pandemic is a good example of an event, right? That's forced a lot of change right. in the industry. For you, what was the first kind of thing that that forced change for you in this industry? That forced, so an external factor that forced yeah. change? Or the, that's an interesting question. Because um, we definitely have made some big sweeping internal changes based on things that we've seen. But an external factor, I mean, some of the more recent ones, there are some definitely some recent ones like, yeah. like, uh, uh, a, a renewed focus on on eco friendliness, on on social justice, like a very important uh, issues like that. That I think um, about diversity and inclusion. Mm. I think those have always I, I've always tried for those to be part of my principles, but to actually be actively acting on them in the board game series was not something that I thought I would be doing when I when I ran a little Kickstarter for Viticulture ten years ago. Um, yeah. There's some of the big things that I think, you know, they're, they're like global things that the game gaming community has taken an active approach towards, which I think is is great that we have a community willing to to make a po hopefully a positive change in a positive, constructive way. Yeah. Those are a few that come to mind. Yeah. Was that kind of the thing you were thinking? Of, yeah, or? kind of. And yeah. then, so, I mean, and, and um, you know, representation, I think, is huge. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and the two things that hit on there. Yeah. Uh, the one it makes me think of is um, when you talk about, uh, you know, eco friendliness. Right. And there's a bit of a debate yeah. around. You know, do you go all paper in the box so it's recyclable and it's, you know, putting quotation marks, earth friendly, or right. do you build a game that's actually going to last, right? And can maybe right. go through several lifespans and be handed on to someone that goes, you know, at a, uh, you know, these, um, when people drop their stuff off at the local, uh, you know, like a, like a used stores or goodwills yeah. and things like this. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Uh, then it's going to get another life and another life after that. And is that right. actually more eco-friendly than just putting it in all paper, which, may not make it past the first, uh, the first life cycle. So right. uh, how have you guys approached that? So far with a mix of different approaches, um, yeah. we're definitely trying to use more paper products uh, mm. than plastic if, uh, when, when possible, which you're right, that, that does uh, put a little bit of a limit on the time span of a game. Although I think that's been the case for any game that uses cards or tiles or a box yeah. for a long time. Like those, those components are traditionally cardboard. Um, the, 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 the edge here, in fact, I was just working on a game today, a game that will come out next year that has some plastic in it. And it, uh, and it's, you know, part, part of it is while I, while I am trying to make, a, make some of our games a more eco-friendly company, I don't want to sacrifice the customer experience because in the end, yeah. the reason we're doing all this is to bring joy to tabletops worldwide. And so some game components, I think, have an impact on the joy that we get at a tabletop. That's why we play table, yeah. or that's at least part of the reason why we play games on the tabletop instead of other platforms. So uh, ultimately, the, I think the customer experience comes first. Um, but, uh, and sometimes that that will mean that we'll use some plastic that, like you said, will last a long time. There, there's yeah. other negatives to plastic, but it will last a long time. And so 
if we put a lot of effort into, say, a miniature that we want to look beautiful that has a has a very important impact on a game, plastic is the is the way to make those miniatures right now. Yeah. Yeah. So you were saying that uh, internally you you had made some changes as a company. So what was the first yeah. the first thing that you guys did to shift as a business? Uh, you know, it's from the beginning to kind of where you're at now. A couple. I would say the the first two big milestones in the in the lifespan of the company. I'll say two because one is really quick. One is me going full time for the company. That was not the yeah. case when we started Viticulture. That wasn't the case when I ran the Euphoria Kickstarter campaign. Um, I, I made that decision in December of 2013 to go full time, and. I think, well, I think it was the right choice. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed having this as my career. And I don't think I would have been able to continue to do both. You have yeah. a day, you have a full-time job, you have a separate yeah. full-time job. And it's, have you gotten to the point where you feel like you have two full-time jobs or is it more like yes. you have a, <laughs> you, you are at that point. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's tough. You know, and, and I was thinking about this, um, you know, this morning I was, I was like, you know, this one thing I really want to kind of understand is. You've made that leap, right? Where you've gone kind of full time. So this is this is your full time job. You in in some cases, you know, it, it's integral to your 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 life, right? Yeah, yeah. When you get to that point, um, which you're in the industry because you love it, and this is a passion where a lot of people want to get to it as a full time job because they just love the industry; it's their passion. Yeah. But you still have to separate life from from gaming, or it's no longer going to be fun, right? It's yeah. it's, it's going to kind of take everything over. How do you how do you balance? How do you separate you know, kind of the personal life and kind of, or, or do you uh, try to separate kind of yourself from Stonemeyer so you have a piece of time that's to you and your family that's kind of separate from the gaming? Um, it's been a, it's been a learning process. Um, yeah. Part of it. So for the gaming part, like gaming is still one of my primary hobbies yeah. and I'm never really able to turn off the designer part of my brain. I, I, Sometimes for games that I know really well and everyone else at the table knows them really well, uh, then I am analyzing those games a lot less than, than a game that I'm playing for the first time. But that part of my brain is always on. And I, I found that I don't really mind it. I, yeah. I, those, I, I like when those creative juices are flowing in any form. So that, that part of it is fine. The big learning point for me is that Stillmire Games was the core relationship of my life for a long time. And I mean that romantically, I mean that in terms of like, like kids, essentially, I don't have kids. It was my child. It was mm. my girlfriend. Essentially. I was saying, I'm going to give up all this other stuff so I can just focus on my company for a long time. And that changed around three years ago when I started dating a, a wonderful woman who I now live with. And that changed a lot of things too, because I wanted to, I wanted to better balance the time that I spent on the company and still put as much into it as I always had, but maybe with a little less time. Um, so I could also spend quality time with, with Megan. And so, that, that was a that was a big change in trying to figure that out. And I, I think we found a good balance um, for both of us. We're, we're both introverts too. So we, we both need our own time separately as well after work. So that has worked out really well. So yeah, have you found that right back? Yeah. Yeah. Have you reached a point yet where like you're 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 somewhere and people are like, can we not talk about games right now? Can we just talk about <laughs> politics or whatever it is that happens to be going the conversation around the table? Have you have you run into that yet? Or is everybody still pretty much on the on the game train? I've essentially surrounded myself with people who love games. Like even like my my disc golf buddies that I played disc golf with were all gamers. And so yeah. when we get tired about talking about disc golf on the course, we switch over and talk about gaming or we go back and forth. For better or worse, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm happy to talk about games with, about, with anyone at any time. So I, I like that, I, that there are a lot of people in my life who at least like playing games or like talking about games and thinking about them. 
Yeah. Another, uh, another milestone you had, another shift as a company. And we talked, we touched on a little bit on our uh, two episodes ago with you was this movement to, um, almost do your own, uh, crowdfunding, right? So moving off the crowdfunding platform to now self-funding, uh, self-pre-orders through, through your website. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision to do that and, and what some of the challenges you had when you, when you made that shift? That was, that was the other thing I was, I was thinking of in those first yeah. five years. That was the big tipping point. I know we've talked about it a little bit, but um, yeah, it was, it was the decision after we delivered Scythe to backers. We delivered it early. We delivered a product, the product that we had said we were going to deliver. And even I think we exceeded expectations in many cases. Um, and there was the kind of this weight of negativity around, or not negativity, it's not the right word, but it, I, I, I got to see an interesting side of human nature that summer when we were delivering something early and backers were still complaining that they didn't get it earlier than other backers got it, even though everything was being delivered within a short time frame to all backers yeah. and everyone was getting it earlier than we had anticipated, which I, I don't know if you can imagine that now, but now like products are delivered a year late and I think people have just gotten used to it. But back then oh, yeah. it was it was very different. And it that kind of left a mark on me and maybe really start to look at other things that had maybe not gone as well, or that were higher risk elements. Like there was one fulfillment center that didn't package things nearly as well as they did the previous time. Um, there are all these little factors that went into it. And the the big thing that has stuck with me over time that maybe wasn't as big of a priority then, actually two things. One was we wanted to have a better relationship with retailers, retailers and distributors. And that I think by far has been the number one reason that our company has grown to the point that it has since then. Like yeah. up until that point, we had raised 3.2 million on crowdfunding. Ever since leaving crowdfunding, I think largely due to that relationship with retailers and distributors and to a certain extent, Wingspan. Wingspan has been a huge hit for us. I think our revenue has been over a hundred million dollars in that time. Wow. That's a huge, that's a huge increase over the crowdfunding aspect where people kind of looked at that as the only option. There are definitely other options if you are willing to put in the time to create those relationships with, um, with the supply chain. Um, I know that's not for everybody, but that has made a huge impact on us. Yeah. Is it, um, is it control? Is that is that what's the helps you kind of get to the next step? Like, is it greater control? You know, obviously there's financial costs and so forth using yeah. the you know the crowdfunding platforms, uh, and, and I mean, which is fair. I mean, they're <laughs> you got an audience you're tapping into, um, right. but this decision to kind of go on your own was it to take it was it take more control? I guess right. So more, more control of the supply chain, more control of the quality of how things are going out, and then those relationships, I guess, with the distributors and, and retailers. Is that is that fair? I think control and relationships is a good way to sum it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Originally, we even we even dis- for our first project, Charterstone, uh, first post crowdfunding project, yeah. we didn't even use uh, a pre order system for it. So at the time, we were saying, okay, we're not going to accept direct orders at all. We'll just go through retailers and distributors and try to have some control that way and hone those relationships that way. But what I found was that some customers wanted to order from us. They wanted to order directly from the publisher. Yeah. And from that stemmed our champion program, which is maybe one of the other big turning points where we give people um, not only a way to order from us, but also an incentive to order from us. And that that has been that has worked out great as well. It's kind of an, a paid membership for the. I think you know what it is, but people don't. Yeah, we talked about last time too. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you pay cool. a small amount every year. You get a discount on everything that you order for us for that year, and we prioritize your shipping. And currently, we have around ten thousand champions. So I think it's that's resonated with at least the uh, the more. Uh, diehard Stonemeyer followers and fans. How is the balance between um, 
like retail sales and and pre-orders. So obviously people yeah. who traditionally use crowdfunding campaigns, you're, you're probably looking at like 90, 90% crowdfunding is where the income's coming from 10%, you know, selling right. afterwards with the extra stock. I imagine that balance has changed obviously when now you're self-controlled, but is there still a heavy weighting to, to pre-orders or, or how's that, how's that set up? It's uh, it definitely has changed. Now we, we usually reach out or we always reach out to distributors well, and even before we start production and we say, Hey, like how many do you want us to make of this product? And we give re- distributors privately a lot more information than we used to mm. about the product. So they could say, okay, this, they have a good feeling about this game. They don't have a good feeling about this game. And we base the initial order on that. And what we've seen in general is that it's about, for the first print run, it's usually around a 50-50 split. So around 50% we sell directly through pre-orders and, and then we reserve some more for a web store. Um, and then the other 50% goes into distribution or sold directly to retailers. So a little, definitely a different split, I think, than the most crowdfunding projects. And then as a company, again, I know you guys are lean, right? You guys are really, really lean internally on on, on payroll. Obviously, you've got a massive network. Um, how do you split the management of like new projects, um, which you know has a certain mindset and a certain focus, versus uh, maintaining kind of these these past titles that have been produced, where you have stock you're selling off, or maybe doing reorders and so forth? Right. Is it everybody working on everything, or have you kind of segmented that within your company to try to um, create almost um, different buckets of management for those? Uh, yeah, that's a great. That's a great question. Um, a lot of it is divided between me and my coworker Alex, who is our director of sales and logistics. Yeah. Alex, a lot of his job is handling quantities, uh, talking to distributors, and figuring out a, a that thing that I just talked about for first print runs. But yeah. a lot of it is figuring out how many, how much. How many, what quantity do distributors want for reprints and uh, also for localization partners? That's a big, become a big part of our company, working with uh, companies that publish our games in other languages. And so that's kind of Alex's main pocket, getting those estimates, a lot of work with reprints, a lot of work with logistics. Um, and I'm more on the project management side of deciding which products, which new products we're pursuing and which um which products are we creating to help uh, renew or maintain interest in brands that we've already created? So like there's, you know, promos, expansions, things like that. Yeah. How many projects are you guys running now? Like in a, in a year, like, like I know a lot of companies I talk to are, you know, their, their, their capacity is kind of three to four launches a year is kind of on the high end. Um, yeah. I, I think your, uh, I think your actually might be higher than that. Where are you guys at in terms of your frequency of launches and number of things you're, you're cranking out a year? We usually aim for and have been been hitting around two games a year, two new games a year, and around two expansions and maybe okay. a, a fun accessory or two thrown in there. So around the four then, yeah. That seems yeah. to be the limit when I talk to a lot of people. It's it's a lot, right? Like, Yeah. If, especially if you're doing two new games, uh, those other two, like I can't imagine doing four new games. That would almost like, <laughs> yeah, that'd be a lot to handle, right? I think so. And I... I I kind of like, uh, I like keeping it like I could hire another person and probably increase that capacity. Sure. But, or I could work more and and increase that capacity, but I kind of like that we have a false, um, a false, uh, I don't know if stopgap is the right term, but uh, I don't really want to create more than that. I I, I would rather really shine the spotlight on a few great products every year than kind of inundate our fans or the gaming industry in general, given there's so many other awesome products for, for, from other companies coming out too. So yeah, um, I want to make sure that, yeah, that we're, that we're publishing the best of the best of the things that come through our door. 
Well, that's awesome. I, I noticed you've got, uh, as part of your 10-year anniversary, uh, this game called Smitten. Can, can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Uh, and uh, did I read somewhere that it's like free or something this month, or you get it, it free, free with another game? Or can, can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, Smitten is a little one- to two-player cooperative game um, that originally I... I, I, the, the very brief version of it is that I was inspired by these comic book cards that I collected as a kid where there was a certain set of cards where you could combine um, nine cards into a panorama if you collected the right cards. Um, and so the original thought was we wanted to do something interesting for our 10th anniversary. And so I was going to create the ten, uh, nine different cards and then just randomly put one in every package that we sell in September without telling people anything about it. That'd be cool. But we, I kind of realized this as I processed that idea a little bit more that people would probably be confused by it. There might be cards that don't end up in the package. They end up damaged or, you know, there's no context for it. Someone might open a package and wonder like, why did I get this? Is this a mistake? What is this? Uh, and so eventually I was like, okay, why don't I just make a little game out of this and we'll give away that for free in, instead. And so Smitten um, emerged from that concept as something to give away uh, to, to celebrate the people who have supported us over the years. And hopefully into the future. So it's a game that we'll sell in the future. But you're right, through October 1st, with any Stillmeyer Games web store order, we're we're including it for free. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, yeah. when you're talking about kind of that, um, you know, tapping into your childhood, right? And, yeah. and and like it's anytime I think that you know you're able to pull in the nostalgia, it it, it just I know it makes me smile when I think of anything that I do if I can tap back into something to do when I was a kid. It almost yeah. makes you a kid again, right? So I'm yeah. sure that during that process, it brought back a lot of memories, I'm sure, and, and happy memories kind of flooded back with that, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you, do you uh, feel like in any ways that you're accomplishing that with, with your podcast? Was there... Uh, with the podcast? Yeah, I would say, uh, yeah. Uh, the podcast, I've just, I just learned a lot, right? So I Ooh. talked to a lot of uh, a lot of publishers. I'm learning quite a bit. Um, yeah. For me, uh, because my my design partner in our publishing business, the Tin Robot Games, is is my brother, my younger brother. Uh -huh. uh, for us, it's a lot of bonding time, nice. right? And yeah. and when we're playing games, we think back to things that we thought were cool when we were younger, right? And we say, okay, how yeah. can we how can we incorporate this? And uh, and the the hours melt away. Like when you are in the zone, uh -huh. and you're talking about this a little bit earlier, yeah. when you kind of get in that, you know, that deep zone of creative zone. Yeah. It's like time doesn't exist, right? Like it really yeah. does. You just kind of hone right in and, uh, and, and we get into that state quite a bit, uh, you know, playing games together and so forth. So for me, having nostalgia from when I was younger and then being able to pull forward and still kind of build those new memories, uh, it's, it's a certainly an awesome feeling. Um, really cool. so what, what's next for you guys? You uh, obviously yeah. you've got to cut. Right, can you talk about the next game at all? Or is it a secret or can you let us know or what's, what's coming? Uh, fortunately, I, the next thing, fortunately, is not a secret. I, it's the uh, the the new Wingspan expansion, Wingspan Asia. Oh, wow. So I I we've started doing kind of spoiler cards here and there, and the the full reveal of the the rulebook um, will be on October fifth. So coming up in about two weeks now, we'll do the the rulebook reveal followed by the the pre order. So this is a game that we've already produced, and it will go hand in hand with a giant box called the nesting box that we've made to store all Wingspan Wingspan content, past, present, and future. So so it's like a mega box, yeah. is it then or? It's a mega organizer box. So it isn't like, it doesn't come with all Wingspan stuff. It comes with Wingspan Asia inside of it. Okay. And yeah, people can put their the other Wingspan stuff they already know inside that box. 
Um, so yeah, I'm excited. I, that's been something I've been talking about for a while and, yep. and Wingspan Asia is much more recent, but I'm excited to finally get that stuff out in the world, share it with people. And there are definitely, there are some big surprises about Wingspan Asia that I can't reveal yet, but uh, I'm very excited for, for two weeks to come and I can finally reveal all this. Oh, so you're going to reveal, you'll reveal in two weeks. Yeah. In two weeks, October 5th. Yeah. Oh, super awesome. Are you yeah. still doing the, the play testing night? Like, are you still deeply involved in the community in that regard too? Like, I, I got to say for people mm-hmm. listening, like you are probably one of the most selfless <laughs> that I've come across in this industry in terms of your website, sharing your knowledge. We often talk about it on the podcast. Um, just the, the sheer number of times you're actually touching other people's stuff shocks mm-hmm. me, right? Like I'll, I'll, I'll see you talking about another game that uh, it's, it's not a Stonemaier game. It's someone else's game, but you still talk about it. Yeah. Um is that been kind of a like kind of almost like a tenant for you as as a company to say you know I'm just going to be as transparent as possible even mistakes right like you you're very yeah, transparent yeah. on what doesn't work so that people can learn from that um, you know are you still or is the goal to still kind of you know continue with that and 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 share both with the development nights and other gamers as well as kind of sharing some of this knowledge on on your website absolutely yeah that that became a, a core tenant pretty early on through the yeah. blog and then later on came through through the my youtube channel where i talk about game design um it just uh i love games i love talking about games i love i love content creators you i love i love designers publishers yeah. i i mean there's so much amazing creativity in this industry that goes there beyond is. me um that i very early on it felt weird just to talk about my stuff myself and my own stuff and so it, it felt more right to Right to me, at least to to um, be, uh, I guess, generous with my love of all these things. And so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That will that will continue. I think probably long after, even if Stomar Games is no longer a company someday, fizzle out. I think I will still be talking about games that I love and and designers and content creators that that I admire. Um, well, long. certainly, I think you've been a role model for others because I'm starting to see a lot of this now in the industry with people just giving, right? Giving yeah. to give for the for the point of giving with no expectation of necessarily anything coming back, but just to try to see how they can lift others up. Because I think if we lift each other up, the whole industry as a whole rises, doesn't it? Yeah, I've seen. I've definitely seen. I've seen a lot from other content creators too. Like the, the um, oh, I'm blanking on the name right now. Uh, there's a company that came out with a game called Bark Avenue, and I'm blanking on their content right now. But they they were just a YouTube channel for a long mm. time. Um, and they still are, and they still, and, and I had no idea that they were even working on a game because their focus seemed to be more on just being amazing reviewers. Yeah. And they revealed at some point um, that they were making a Teradice games. That, that's the the YouTube channel, Mackenzie and Jonathan. I, I just thought it was awesome that they started by through the, the goodwill efforts and just sharing their love of games and reviewing games. And then they also put a game out there. So yeah, I, I, I think that's awesome that people are doing that. Oh, super cool. Yeah. Jamie, I want to thank you so much for helping me celebrate this 200th episode. Congratulations again on your 10 year anniversary. Maybe we'll get you back for episode 300. Well, yeah, I, I, I hope. Yeah. Congratulations. 200 <laughs> on 200. Yeah. I, I, I know. I don't, I don't need to say, I hope I know that you'll make it to 300. If we get there, we'll see. I might be kind of uh, getting a little ahead of myself, but yeah. <laughs> If it continues to excite you and have fun and you have fun (laughs) with it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, James, for the the time today. It's always great to talk with you. No worries. Take care. Cheers. See ya. Bye. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.